So, good afternoon. Welcome to the Oxford Martin School. I'm delighted today to have uh, Aisha and Parakana, um, two incredibly innovative thinkers, people who are thinking very much in the space that the Oxford Martin School thinks in uh, what's coming uh, and how to make sense of it to ensure that we have a better world. Um, you might already know their CVs, but for those of you that don't, uh, they are co-directors of the Hybrid Reality Institute, uh, which is looking at the space between now and singularity, uh, whenever that is. And, um, they are also very associated with academia. Um, Parag is a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation. Um, he's a visiting fellow at LSE Ideas, and he's involved in many other things. And um, Aisha is a... Uh, directs the Future Cities Group at the London School of Economics. They're both very involved in TED. They've got a TED ebook coming out very shortly, next month or so, June, uh, which apparently has multimedia engagement. So uh, I'm sure that's going to be fun intellectually as well as uh, visually. And they've co authored a number of books. Uh, Hybrid Reality is the one that's coming out now, Preparing for the Age of Human Technology Co Evolution. Uh, and Parox also done How to Run the World, Charting a Course to the Next Renaissance and the Second World Empires and the Influence uh, in, uh, Empires and Influence in the New Global Order. I'm delighted to have them here. They'll speak for about 50 minutes or so and then we'll have a conversation. Thank you so much, Ian, for that uh, great introduction. We're, we're thrilled to be here. This is uh, months in the making, and uh, we're very uh, happy to be part of the series that you have here. I was telling Ian earlier that about um, you know, 10 years ago in academia, at least in public policy, there was a lot of debate and, and hand-wringing about how are we going to make policy-relevant uh, research and cross that divide, and here you, you built it. So thanks so much for having us be part of the conversation. Um, welcome to all of you. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about hybrid reality and the <coughs> concepts and the framework and some of the policy issues that uh, underpin it. And we'll talk through the sort of socio-technical eras that have brought us to this moment, uh, present to you some scenarios, and talk about cities as the locus of where some of these issues will come together. Okay, so we've really defined our eras by the patterns of socio-technical relations. So beginning about two million years ago, we began to use stone tools to dominate other species as we evolved into Homo sapiens. Then about 10,000 years ago, we, uh, they, we moved from hunting and settled to agriculture involving crop cultivation. The Industrial Revolution began about 300 years ago, and technologies in manufacturing, resource extraction, power generation, and transportation enabled the mass industrial society. And then in the 1970s and late 1980s, we uh, moved into the information era. And um, that was with the advent of the personal computer and then the World Wide Web. And now we are at the frontier, we believe, of another era, and we are calling this the hybrid age. And how is the hybrid age different from previous eras? Well, it's different because technology, first of all, is becoming more integrated. Information technology is integrating with equally important other fields such as biology, mathematics, neuroscience, physics, and it, all these fields are also merging with each other. It's becoming ubiquitous. This means one consequence of this integration of technologies is also growing ubiquity. 
technologies are now becoming all pervasive with nanotech and sensors and also what is called the Internet of Things. The relationship with technology is not going to be a one-way street anymore, but in fact, we are going to give and have intelligent feedback through analytics, sophisticated analytics from these technologies. And finally, our interaction with these technologies will be increasingly lifelike and human through gestures and avatars um, that respond to us with almost human-like expressions. So if you think of... So this um, you know, complex entanglement uh, as it is between humans and technology is you know, the new socio-technical nexus. And the, the previous eras we have, as Aisha mentioned, which our eras are defined by our technologies, is giving rise to uh, a new socio-technical nexus in which technologies merge with each other, and humans merge with technology. And we'll flesh this out in a bit more detail. This, again, this human uh, technological entanglement, we think there are three important concepts uh, to help understand intellectually how we've evolved to get to this uh, point. The first one I want to talk about is human technology co-evolution. Um, if you look at those writing about tech the patterns of technology evolution itself, such as Brian Arthur from the Santa Fe Institute, he's written about how specific uh, simple technologies have over time combined into more complex uh, patterns and how those combinations have their own evolutionary sorts of, um, of, of, of trajectories. Uh, Kevin Kelly most recently has uh, coined this term technium to talk about the sum total of all technologies and created something of, uh, of a sort of family tree in a way in describing it. But his term technium also includes our human relationship with those technologies. So here you see people applying the concept of evolution to technology. Then there's what has happened in our discourse around human evolution itself. Um, you know, Darwin's theories of modification by descent, uh, interesting to be talking about this at Oxford, obviously. Um, Robert Fogel uh, from the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winning economist, has done research on how our human genetic evolution, how our human bodies have evolved since the Industrial Revolution as a result of innovations in medical technology. And he says that, or he claims that we are today almost a different species from Homo sapiens on the basis of what he calls techno-physio evolution. So where these come together, literature and, and research on uh, technology evolution patterns and on human evolution is what we, you know, is, is sort of this idea of the hybrid age and human technology evolution coming together. We find that one sort of overarching approach that has been taken now um, by Adrian Bajan, a mathematician at Duke University, which he writes about the constructal law, which is a theory of, of a design effectively arguing that all of these patterns, whether it's technological evolution or human evolution, are um, shaped or structured so as to maximize the flow of their contents, whether it is genetic material or specific technologies, and that the increasing complexity and combination of either human technologies or, um, or material technologies and their merger still follow this design principle of what he calls maximizing flow. And the second concept that we think is, is uh, relevant uh, is, is this idea of technic, uh, a German word derived from, from ancient Greek. In historical usage in the 20th century, uh, it's been used already. Lewis Mumford, uh, the great American sociologist, wrote about how technic is the sum total of culture, technology, people, processes, and rules, obviously capturing quite a lot. Oswald Spengler, similarly, a very broad approach to understanding this notion of technic, which is uh, e with the intersection of economic, political, cultural, and educational systems. 
In the hybrid age, how would you adapt this one century old idea of how we adapt to technology and how technology is integrated into our social system? Well, at least two attributes would be important. So you would locate technique at the intersection of scientific determinism, which is effectively talking about the mechanical advance of technology, and social constructivism, our own individual agency and in how we incorporate technology in our lives. The second aspect of technique, uh, we would argue, is a, a bit more normative, which is the capacity to harness these emerging technologies within these systems. So the technique as an attribute of, of a social system is its ability to handle these technologies well. The third concept is generativity, a uh, somewhat newer term, at least when applied to social sciences. One of the most known examples of generativity, which, which has been defined as this property of a system uh, to have the capacity for creation, is Noam Chomsky's work on generative grammar, which he has discussed uh, about 50 years ago, um, how very few simple, uh, few simple innate rules allow for the wide diversity of, of uh, linguistic expression. Jonathan Zittrain has used this term to describe the internet. What he says is that, that what is generative about the internet is its capacity for, um, for new users to come in, even unexpected users who aren't creators of the system, to be participants and to create new values and products. So in both cases you see this capacity for creation to emerge from any participant in the system is a feature of generativity. Now, can that be applied to our social systems today? Can we, can we look at this concept of generativity and argue that they are exhibiting a growing trend towards generativity in the hybrid age? And we believe that this is starting to happen. If you look at the dynamics of participation and technologies and outcomes, uncontrolled outcomes, in our health space, education space, uh, economy and governance, you're starting to see this, uh, uh, this, this uh, expansiveness of the capacity of the system, new users, to create new values and outputs together. But at the same time, generativity is itself a value-neutral uh, property. Uh, it's open to all people, but it can be uh, pulled in different directions, egalitarianism or monopolism. And towards the end, we'll talk about some of the ethical implications of that. Now, these three concepts coming together and the new human uh, technology uh, sort of nexus, socio-technical nexus, also forces us to rethink certain paradigmatic ways in which we've thought about uh, global change. Geopolitics has been the sort of dominant paradigm in, in looking at macro, structural, hierarchical issues in which one is focused on um, uh, natural resource endowments, power projection capabilities of militaries and, and things like this. Only in the late 20th century was the term geotechnology, uh, sorry, geoeconomics, coined to emphasize things like terms of trade um, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, foreign direct investment, balance of payments, things like this. We believe that one should look at the concept of geotechnology as well as an important driver of macro global change as well, and that really you need all three concepts to understand global change today. And here are some examples of why. The shift towards multipolarity. Well, China today is not a superpower simply because it has about 25 more nuclear warheads than it had a couple of decades ago, is it? It's become a superpower on the back of harnessing and capturing the market in one key technological area, manufacturing, rising up the value chain, generating enormous profits from it to make itself a geoeconomic power, 
and then leveraging that capital to invest in strategic gains and leverage, investing in its military as well as it's doing right now. The flow of how China has become a superpower is not geopolitics first, then geoeconomics, then technology. It's technology first, then economics, then military, or a much more complex entanglement of the three than we traditionally assume when you look at the rise of China from a strictly multipolar geopolitical lens. Of course, the shrinking of space, the spread of communications technology and transportation infrastructure, those are also technological developments that, again, show how, um, that how uh, technology has an impact on economics and politics. Convergence of economies, of course, as well, the China example further underscores the role of technology in, um, in, in uh, producing greater economic growth, such as uh, the internet and other technologies. Um, and also the spread of innovation, the rapid pace uh, of diffusion of technological knowledge has been a major factor as well now, or a growing factor in growth in emerging markets. And finally, new forms of collaboration across stakeholders, whether it is uh, corporations, governments, civil society actors, and others. Technology opening up the capacity for them to collaborate in unfiltered, unmediated ways also has a lot to do with technology as a driver. Now, a lot of people ask at this point, this uh, hybrid age, aren't, aren't we supposed to actually have the singularity come next? Uh, uh, you know, wh why do you have this concept of the hybrid age? Well, or other people say, aren't we still in the information age? Well, of course, in the information age, um, you know, we experience machines connecting to, to us and allowing us to connect to each other, but of course it was more of a, a one-way street. Um, the singularity, is um, a, a sort of distant point, which we don't know when, if, if or when it will ever come, when machine intelligence becomes greater than human intelligence. We do believe that it's necessary to locate this, this uh, period um, of the hybrid age somewhere in between, where machines are becoming, as I just said, more integrated, ubiquitous, intelligent, and social. And this will define at least the next 10, 20, 30 years, and potentially more. And so it's, uh, for us, very interesting to, to um, think about this frontier of the information age without getting obsessed with the idea of a singularity. Now we're going to talk through uh, some scenarios around, um, around uh, the hybrid age. I'll do the first one. So DIY manufacturing. Uh, this is something that's become a, a very big topic of conversation today, covers of The Economist and other magazines touting the rise of 3D printing technologies and how uh, uh, through such technologies as the cost of such devices come down, a Faber printer or maker bot is coming down to the cost of around $1,000 or less, um, how this will allow uh, something of a manufacturing renaissance on a small scale, allowing the sort of mom and pop manufacturers to create any uh, prototypes or objects that they want in much limited volume at much lower cost and therefore begin to export uh, and trade through online websites like Etsy and so forth. The logic then goes that this will allow uh, the American um, uh, producers to get back in the manufacturing game and challenge uh, ch uh, Chinese manufacturing juggernaut or the Asian manufacturing and export powers. So far, so good in terms of the story. And this is more or less about as far as most mainstream publications take it. What they're forgetting, though, is that in an interconnected world of geopolitical, geotechnological, and geoeconomic systems, 
What would happen if there were, in fact, a major collapse in Asian exporting uh, as a result of the spread of 3D printing technology uh, amongst uh, Western producers? Well, what might happen is that China would no longer be able to recycle its, uh, its uh, current account surpluses into American treasuries, and that could be a major headache for America if suddenly, it's, uh, um, if, uh, suddenly interest rates went up. So most people don't, don't think about the cascading aspect of this scenario, but we use it to underscore the extent to which it's very hard to tease out winners and losers on a geotechnological uh, playing field. We'll do three more scenarios. So the next scenario you want to talk about is the rise of intelligent robots. And I'd like to preface this by saying that I'm not talking about robots that are exactly like us. It's, it's relatively low intelligence, low levels of intelligence, but still, um, they are becoming more prevalent in our society. Now, in South Korea, they just invested uh, $45 million last year in robots that can become uh, teaching assistants or teachers for English language programs. And um, in, in the United States, meet Da Vinci. He cost $140,000, at least he did last year. And he performed, amongst other things, 86% of the prostate surgeries in the US. So we're seeing that they are entering classrooms, they're entering the operating room. Uh, you may think, well, maybe there's, you know, my profession is still safe. Um, for lawyers, uh, for better or worse, that's not true. Um, there is a company that is able for $100,000 to do what is known as discovery. This is when you basically unleash tens of paralegals onto documents to find precedent and words and former cases. They were able to go through 1.5 million documents for $100,000 in, I think, one-tenth or less of the time that a bunch of paralegals would do it, um, and, and the company would bail millions of dollars for that. And it's just not for professions. Um, I think uh, this is one of my favorite rock stars. Her name is Hatsune Miku. She is about six feet tall. She never ages. She has very long blue pigtails. She's very popular in Tokyo. Uh, sold out concerts and expensive tickets. Uh, 60,000 people attended one of her concerts last year. She's a holographic rock star. Um, and she is popular, people don't really seem to notice. I mean, she's an acquired taste, but if you go to YouTube, you might like some of her songs as well. Um, and so the point here, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is not only are they taking over some of the things we can do, and not everything, but there is this attitude that it's okay, you know, I like this singer, it doesn't almost matter whether the singer is human or holographic computerized uh, rock star. So, you know, this myth or this fear, at least in the US, we talk about this a lot, is there's this like, you know, Western uh, middle-aged man, and he's really running away from this young Asian entrepreneur. He's usually supposedly Chinese. But I think both in China and in, um, in the West, it's this little robot that we need to be thinking about. And like I said, the reason he's small and he's cute is because he's not necessarily able to do exactly everything, but he can still do quite a lot of things in terms of displacing us. So that's one scenario. Um, one way to compete with robots is to become part robots oneself. And this is something that um, comes in the healthcare uh, social systems that we talk about, but through drugs and uh, through prosthetics and brain-computer interfaces, we can actually begin to enhance ourselves. And what we will find is 
that we will start to redefine the concept of health. And we will move from just prevention and therapy to prevention and therapy plus enhancement. And how that will happen will probably be quite subtle. We'll probably be uh, somebody's disabled and needs a prosthetic or somebody's very sick and needs a new heart and they're given one which is even better than the one they had before. So it's not going to be something very radical, but, but through these life-saving treatments that are actually also potentially enhancements, um, I think that we will begin to accept this more and more. And as a result, we will begin to see a lot of these offered in the West and in the East. But now let's put on our geopolitical hats again and think, well, who is really going to benefit from this? So a lot of the invention happens in the West. In fact, and in the US, we like to say we really love our mice because we do a lot of experiments on mice, but it costs $1 billion in about uh, 15 years to take any drug to market. So this is happening in the West, a lot of invention, but they're very slow in commercialization. So in comes Singapore, in comes Korea, uh, in comes China, and they attract the best researchers and scientists. And not only do they bring a lot of that technology and research to the East, but then they commercialize it. And then they have three advantages. Number one, uh, exports, so they make money. Number two, in-house research, which means they can build upon it. They have local knowledge. And number three, maybe they can subsidize it for their own population. So let's think about that. Uh, this is the Beijing Genomics Institute. It's actually called something else now. Um, and and they, last year, I think they sequenced the DNA of the panda. And it's really cute. Um, and you know, if you think about it, they're actually doing a, a lot of animals, and they're aggressively going out, and they're seeking to sequence a lot of the, uh, the different uh, DNA competitions that are out there. They actually aggressively seek to compete for those awards. And uh, the Chinese government has given them $1.5 billion so this, uh, to help them in this research. So a couple of years ago, um, I think it was two years ago, a journalist from Nature went to BGI, and he expected to find a number of very serious middle-aged Chinese professors over there, and he was shocked. He came back and he said it looked like Facebook. They're all in their early 20s. They're all very entrepreneurial. They're very aggressive. And innovation and creativity is not hard-coded in genetics. They could very well move beyond just sequencing to actually doing something more with it. Uh, what more can they do? We don't know. Um, maybe one theory is, or one scenario is, they could subsidize a large part of their population. It would become very hard to compete with them for other countries. Uh, and uh, you know, enhancements may be expensive. These are some of the things other countries need to think about when you're thinking about healthcare enhancements beyond just the cosmetic idea of being beautiful or more than human. So the last thing that I want to talk about is this emergence of the global brain. And so we've looked at a couple of sectors, and I'm going to talk about education. Uh, this is Sebastian Thrin. Um, in 2007, he was a professor at Stanford University. In 2010, I'm sure a number of you read that he launched the Google driverless car. And just a few weeks ago, they showed uh, the car driving a blind man. I don't know which, maybe it was in Nevada, but it was a really incredible um, YouTube video in which the, the blind man gets in and, and he can drive to his local errands and he can, he's not as disabled anymore. So Sebastian Thrun was on that team. Um, in 2011, he decided to launch a free online course on artificial intelligence. 160,000 people 
um, including myself, uh, signed up for that course. Not all of us finished it, in including myself. But the point here is that it was available from a Stanford professor, an incredible course. I mean, I come from Pakistan. Uh, a small-time student in Lahore can log on and learn from this person. So he was really amazed at this. This, this. He thought this was paradigm shifting. And he left in 2012 and he started Audacity, which is an online university, which I think is a great name for it as well. And the first course that he's teaching is programming a robotic car. And again, I think you know, we need to think of a moment. To, this was only taught in Ivy League schools or great universities. Now anybody can look at it and learn the basic principles. So you may say, how does he pay for it? I really like the business model that he has. He makes the employers pay for it. He says that I will share the results of Aisha Khanna and how well she did uh, with uh, you know, Morgan Stanley because they want a quantitative analyst. And they will pay for this information. And in return, I will get a free education. So he's kind of, we're seeing this market shift in terms of the burden of who is paying for education. Now, the idea of this global brain, and a lot of people really talk about this, is that this is phenomenal. The more people who come in means that more people can lead to better, for instance, water filtration plants. Um, this is a big issue in the emerging world in Africa. But if, if we have uh, uh, the information for these kinds of tools, then we can innovate upon them. And frugal innovation can lead to better uh, solutions in emerging economies. But of course, at the same time, uh, and this is where what Parag was talking about, generativity. So you have new users, you have new players, you have new uh, forms of access, but everybody has access. That means cyber thieves have access, the dictator has access, um, you know, my mother-in-law has access, like everybody has access, right? So we need to think about what's good and bad about these things. And, um, and this is, this was, the, the reason for those four scenarios really was to show that it's just not about technology. The technology is embedded in a bigger picture uh, of society and politics and each influence each other. So now we're going to move into the third uh, discussion around the, the geography with, that brings a lot of these trends together. That is, of course, the city. It's important to think about the shift in scale um, as we have this conversation. So often we simply take for granted that the nation state, the Westphalian system, is the, 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 the sort of the main prevailing paradigm in which we function. But really, um, when it comes to the hybrid age and the, and the confluence of these trends, it's almost always in cities that we're actually talking about these things uh, happening. And why is that? Well, there's at least uh, three reasons why. The first is mass urbanization. Many of you have heard this before. The percentage of the world's population that lives in cities is now greater than 50%. By many estimates, it will be 70% by 2050. New city construction. Uh, UN, the UN estimates that we need to build 9,000 new cities in the coming decades to manage the urbanizing uh, population. Uh, some involve expansion of existing cities, but also new cities or smart cities, and we'll talk about that as well. The third is a shift in identity, the idea that the, that the civic uh, identity um, is somehow becoming superior or, or more, more prominent uh, than the national identity. And Daniel Bell, um, a Canadian scholar living in China, has just written a book called The Spirit of Cities. And Oxford is actually one of the cities about which there's a chapter. But he says the citizen is the new citizen. So there are a variety of, of reasons why one should think about the dynamics of cities, of the places where you will see the hybrid age uh, unfold. So what are smart cities? 
basically the technology they use are essentially network infrastructure and internet of things. But conceptually the idea is that um, the built environment it has both a hard infrastructure component and a soft infrastructure component. In other words, there's a layer of software on most of your built environment, from your table to your walls to your buildings. And uh, almost the city becomes like a platform, like an iTunes, where you can actually pu uh, put a variety of apps on it. So for example, you can have smart homes, which means that you can tell your home that you're arriving through your car. All of this is nothing new, actually. It's possible at the moment in, in many of the prototypes that are coming out. Uh, smart traffic, this was just in Times Square, New York, where through video, video cameras and sensors, they can uh, you know, change the, the timing of the traffic lights by milliseconds so that the flow is much better. Um, smart power, this means you can use micro smart grids, you can both take power and you can return power when you're not using it, which is very important because power is a big problem, uh, especially in emerging economies. Uh, smart profiles, um, again, we'll talk about the issues with some of these things, but the idea is you have one profile, you have one convergent identity and as you walk through a city, uh, whether you go to the grocery store or let's say you fall, uh, your grandmother falls on the carpet, the carpet sensor sends an email or, or immediately identifies the police service and, uh, and they are immediately able to pull up her medical records. So this can only happen that the speed can only occur if there's one secure profile. In Songdo, which I'm gonna talk about, there are also smart trees. They actually put sensors on trees and they email the department of watering or whatever it is uh, that they need watering. So, um, so the idea is this generic term of smart, which has become very popular and has really captured the imagination of, of people in the city space where I am. Uh, the idea is that you integrate technologically all the various functions of the city whether from waste to education to healthcare to transportation. And in doing so, you improve the quality of service that you're given. And at the same time, you have more transparency into how well the city is doing. So you can provide your feedback. Theoretically, at least, you should be able to constantly provide your feedback and be able to manage and um, hold your mayors and their offices accountable. And this is big business. Oh, just in 10 years, we expect $1.2 trillion to be spent on it. And there's a great social impact opportunity uh, in healthcare, in education, the very systems that we talked about, uh, where you can connect with, you don't rely on bricks and mortar anymore, but at home students can study and you can uh, have better education to more people in healthcare. Um, I always like to give the example of Proteus Biotech where you can take a pill and it will send a sensor if it's digested. Uh, this is important for those of us who have any grandparents who have Alzheimer's, they often forget to take their medication. So uh, in a network infrastructure where there are ubiquitous sensors, you can um, monitor these things much better. Now, as a result of the money and the branding opportunity, there's been a rush. There are two types of smart cities. Uh, one is new cities altogether. These are called greenfield cities, which is why they're green. And so you have things like Songdo in Korea or Lavasa in India, our King Abdullah Economic City. You can see uh, there's Planet Valley here, but, but that's not going so well. Uh, but, but they're mostly on the east, eastern side, because they have the money, and they also have the uh, urban migration pressures to create new cities. So when you're going to create new cities, like 9,000 new cities or 50,000 people, uh, population each, then you have an opportunity to build this network infrastructure from scratch. On the other hand, there are cities like London and New York and Rio 
And in these, you have to slowly retrofit them with technology. And like Parag said, over 70% of us will live in cities by 2050. It's important. This is going to happen to one of our cities. And we need to pay attention to how technology is going to be used um, in the place that we live. I'm just going to give you the example of Songdo. We just wanted to show you a picture. This is uh, near Seoul, near Incheon Airport. And they tried to create an international financial district. It's known as the world's first intelligent city. Um, it's not really. It is the first that attempted to do it. Uh, but they have telepresence monitors everywhere. And Cisco is very involved in it. And um, they have very um, network buildings and smart grids. So the point is they're actually being built. Uh, this is a, a picture of it, but Barag and I went there last year, and, and you know I would say a fair bit of it was built already. So here's the deal. You know, I mean, this is all very utopian. Uh, things are going to be great in these cities. Well, there's, uh, there's always a trade-off in technology. We know that. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, um, it's very good to have this one secure profile. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it's very dangerous to have everything watched all the time. So you may say, and people always say this to me, because I was arguing with uh, the, the guy from Cisco uh, at, at a conference in, and the mayor of Incheon in Seoul. And I said there are three problems with Songdo. There are three Ps that I'd like to understand. Um, privacy, participation, and poverty. Like, how are you dealing with these three things? And the Cisco guy was like, he, he's like, well, you know, this is not really that important. There's no privacy anyway. Uh, you, you give everything from Facebook. You, you, you tell everything to everybody. Um, your credit card company has been doing this for ages. Um, well, yes, that's true. Um, but on the other hand, there's something a little more subtle and insidious about network infrastructure. It's invisible. And I'm not telling it anything. It's just watching me. And, and it's autonomously just gathering information. It knows I'm here with Barag. It knows what my daughter and my son are doing at home. Um, and I think that this is the difference between software and hardware. So this is a camera. We have a lot of them in London, CCTV cameras. Uh, today, this camera has a certain ability. It can recognize your face. Uh, tomorrow, its software may be upgraded. And maybe it can link that to your health account. Uh, day after tomorrow, it may link that to your children's retirement fund, or college fund, rather. And software upgrades are invisible. You don't know when a software upgrade happens. Most of the time, we get it as a, a term on our iPhone, and we just say, I agree. So not only are they invisible, but when they're not, we're lazy about it. And part of what we do at the Institute is talk about this need for an activism and awareness, a return to awareness, and really engaging with technology instead of being very passive about it. Um, and, it, and you know, it's, it's subtle. We just really need to understand that. Now, so there's some good things about it. There's a lot of now self-quantification rage, that you can know if your heart is beating a certain way. And, um, and this woman is in a Nike ad, and she's using Fitbit. And she's, you know, she's looking great, um, I have to say. So um, she's, she's doing well. She's running in Tribeca in New York. And um, she's using all these technologies to help her. They're routing where she should, where the traffic is less and where she should go for a run. Um, but they're making subtle suggestions to her also. Maybe she doesn't realize it. Maybe they're uh, telling her to run past a shop. Uh, you don't know. Maybe it was advertising. Maybe it was something else. Jeremy Balenson at Stanford University does some amazing research on this, where he talks about how when we go into virtual environments, we really are affected by what we see in there. So uh, one of his experiments was uh, of these children 
who went into a virtual environment and they, you know, they wore this, these goggles and they thought they were swimming with dolphins. And they came out and they were asked a little later, so you know, did you see those? They were like, yes. And then a week later, their parents asked them, do you remember this? And they didn't remember it was virtual. They said, yes, we remember. It became a memory. They said, we remember we were swimming with dolphins and they insisted on it. And that's why we like to think about children because they're very vulnerable. But, um, but it also happens with human beings. There are people who went in um, and did dating. They, they did a lot of interesting research on this. So the point being that, and that there's an opportunity for manipulation. Jeremy thinks at some point, like Ray Kurzweil says, there's going to be some anti-manipulation software, like you have antivirus software, right? And I'm sure these things will happen. But we always like to focus on the, the, the step from here to there. So we still have to navigate that as people. Um, awesome. That brings us to Technic. Right. So to sort of circle back and, and to, to wind down, um, what is all of, all of these trends and scenarios and unexpected uh, um, uh, outcomes that could happen in, in these generative systems in which we're all participating willingly or unwillingly? To manage that, we need to think and go back to this concept of Technic. How do our uh, cultural, uh, social, educational, and other systems help us to cope with emerging technologies that may have un, um, unintentional or um, uh, unpredicted implications. Well, one thing, you know, there are four things we want to highlight. The first is embedding of values. Um, what are the universal rights that can help us ensure that we as individuals maintain control uh, over technology? Well, the first is simply to have access to them rather than being frozen out. Uh, transparency is extremely important. Aisha mentioned the various ways in which uh, upgrades can happen in technology and you don't even know what you're, what you're signing up to. Uh, and, and then uh, participation in, in systems and political discourse that deliberates over how these technologies are going to be uh, implemented. And of course, uh, equity because we could very quickly move into a world of haves and have-nots. Um, you know, one of the sub-sub-sort of topics in this is the question of whether or not the internet is a uh, human right. Uh, the United Nations recently uh, published a report saying that the internet uh, should be considered a human right. Finland and France have declared that it is. But uh, Vince Cerf, one of the great uh, uh, technology entrepreneurs and thinkers in the United States, has said if the technology, uh, the internet should not be thought of as a human right itself, but rather just as an enabler of other rights, something to which if you have access, uh, you can help to, to uh, promote your role and your voice uh, in, in society. And I think we are more on the side of, of where Vinpin Surf is going because the internet is not yet a, a sort of international human right. However, it's becoming an international human reality a lot faster. So rather than, than focus more on the politics and the negotiations in international uh, bodies about, about whether or not it's a right, we should be pushing as much as possible to simply promote it as a reality. The second aspect of uh, achieving better technique is simply techno-pragmatism, and this is more on the level of societies. Building capacities in, in leading sectors. We've talked about biotechnology, nanotechnology, information technology, advanced manufacturing, robotics, artificial intelligence. These are the many leading sectors of economies of the future, and diverse economies of the future <coughs> will need to look at how to build capacity in these areas to create jobs, and also, again, to avoid uh, being part of the global have-nots, uh, so to speak. So how are we, and also it's how do you elevate uh, your own technique as it's measured? Now we don't have a single good technique index, so to speak, but we certainly have a proliferation of reports and studies and rankings and indices around various aspects of 
quality of life. Um, there's there's uh, income, uh, GDP measurements, Human Development Index of the United Nations, the Connectivity or Technology Preparedness Index of the World Economic Forum, something that brings together these three and, and other types of indices is going to be necessary to be a more accurate, um, to provide a more accurate assessment of where various societies stand in terms of their level of technique. Because certainly income alone uh, is not a good indication necessarily of how well societies are prepared for uh, the future. Uh, thirdly, a mindfulness about design. Understanding that every technology system in which you participate is not necessarily neutral. It's been designed by someone. In other words, there is a structure that has been, been given by someone else who is not you, and you have to make sure that you retain your agency in that, meaning, again, your ability to decide um, uh, of what information you give out, what you're able to retain private. That's extremely important. Um, uh, examples of that include the work by Ali uh, Parise, Parise on filter bubbles, the notion that uh, the information that you get from Google is not just a neutral search. The uh, search results that you get and what any other people get, everyone in this room can type in the same search term and you'll get all different rankings uh, of material based on what it thinks you want to know based on your previous search history. In other words, um, uh, a filter bubble can, if anything, reinforce your prejudices, biases, and ignorance. Similar thing happens with the idea of walled gardens. The, this is the accusation leveled against Facebook and uh, Apple's uh, iStore. Uh, that actually you can only be part of it if you provide certain information, if you're an accredited uh, producer uh, of apps and things like this. So there's, an, there's a built-in internal and, uh, uh, inclusion and exclusion based on criteria and principles which you are not necessarily party to. Finally, managing your uh, identities. We're moving into an era where we have our physical or individual identity, but also our virtual avatars, which uh, in, in various uh, uh, laboratories and uh, various developers are already creating uh, virtual avatars that have what's called AI plus. They're imbued with some degree of autonomy to carry out functions and yet we still control them in some way. And then robotic uh, companions, which we haven't talked much about, but there's a huge proliferation of robots in our social environment, as Aisha mentioned. So these are the different identities which we are now going to increasingly uh, think of as being related to us as a self. How are we going to manage all of them? That is going to be part of having good individual uh, technique. And that means that you have to think about the feedback loops and um, between those different identities and yourself. What, when you say, I believe, or, or I myself am, uh, what is that actually going to mean when you have multiple identities to manage uh, and to juggle? And that means that, that this, all of these concepts around the hybrid age um, boil down to technique, but not just for countries or for, uh, for companies, but actually for you as an individual. And with that, we'll, uh, we'll stop and look forward to, uh, to taking your questions. Thank you so much. Thank you.